May 7th, 2023, we're continuing in Mesilat Yesharim, we're in Perik Yod Gimel, Bebeur Midat HaPerishut. If you recall, what Ramchal has been developing for us throughout Perik Yod Gimel is a new pathway, uh, that of abstinence. And it's been a little bit difficult to understand in the initial stages because he's been very clear, quoting from Ma'amare HaChamim, statements of the rabbis, that to abstain beyond that which A, was mandated by the Torah, and B, was additionally uh, put in place by the rabbis, is not only uh, inappropriate, it might be asur. Uh, So to talk about this concept of abstaining, of separating, of moving yourself away from isur, above and beyond that which, to a certain extent, is found in Shulchan Aruch, seems out of place, seems inappropriate, and nonetheless, he has presented for us many ma'amari, many statements from the rabbis, which are praiseworthy of the person who moves away from them. And before addressing the technicality of how that's possible, whereas on the one hand, shouldn't be doing so, on the other hand, it appears as if we're being praised for doing so, what Ramchal has been in the midst of doing here in Perek Yod Gimal is he's been setting forth, realistically speaking, how could it be that a person could imagine that without perishut, without abstaining, without moving away from above and beyond that which you're told not to do, uh, that you'd actually live a life which is uh, sin-free or which moves you away from sin. He's been talking about just normal circumstances where if you just follow halakha but you fall prey to acting in the normal fashion, you might or will in turn find yourself involved, unfortunately, with all sorts of sinful activity. So he's making the case before he resolves the technical details in terms of the statements of the hachamim, he's making the case for perishut. He's making the case for, well, let's be practical here. Let's be uh, realistic. And in the midst of that, he's, uh, we'll pick up with these words, hazenut amru. He cites from the Gemara at the very beginning of Masechet Sotah with regards to zenut. Zenut means uh, sexual promiscuity, inappropriate relations. It says, Kol bekilkula yazir min hayayin. Any person who sees the woman who's a sotah, wayward woman, who is bekilkula, she's caught by her husband, uh, she's brought through the mishkan, uh, she's drinking the uh, water which is uh, mandated, the Torah and parashat. Now, so any person who sees that, and the Hachamim derived this from juxtaposition in Parashot, that in Parashat Naso, we go from Sota, the description of the wayward woman, uh, immediately to Nazir, Yinazir and that person should move themselves away even from the permitted wine, even from matters and situations which are technically speaking mutar, minha Torah. Uh, what says Mesilah Hashem, but pay attention to that. We're not speaking negatively, per se, about such a react- reality. This is a great trick, so that a person can save themselves from e- inclinations. When a person is uh, ensnared by sin, when we're set forth in situations which are tempting, which are deceptive for us, Oh, well, it's difficult to overcome them. Alken, for that reason, So therefore, if you see the circumstance from afar, you heard about the sota, you got murmurings of what's taking place in other people's homes, in the community at large, well, distance yourself immediately. The moment you get involved in it, the moment you're ensnared, the moment you're a part of the fabric of this, this machine, 
uh, difficult to take yourself out of it. Uh, it's, it's easy to be sliding along with the rest of it. Uh, it's at that point more difficult because your yeser, your your inclination is taking a hold of you. And what Masilati Sharim then is, is doing is, again, um, pointing out just from a practical circumstance in our own lives, realizing that as we are not tempted to certain matters, it's at those moments that sometimes it's appropriate to build gates. It's appropriate to uh, distance ourselves further. It's, uh, it's appropriate to uh, exert our pity shoot. He says, think about uh, relations with your wife. It's certainly completely and fully permitted, of course, under halachic uh, circumstances when she's not a nida and in the appropriate sneerut fashion. However, the Gemara has, uh, the Mishnah and the Gemara in Masech Bava Kama describes how Ezra HaSofer nonetheless had, now the Gemara in Berachot explains how it's not per se in effect any longer, but he had in his time a Takana for Ba'ale Kerin. It means if a person had relations, if a person had a seminal emission, that person should in turn and not be involved with uh, Torah until they're tovel, until they immerse themselves. But that's not an obligation from the Torah. Why do you need to immerse yourself in a mikveh uh, after seminal emission if that's not the halacha? The answer says, It says that it's to distance ourselves from permitted relations. What, what do you mean? If it's permitted, didn't we have to see the statement uh, last week in which Mesilai Sharim quoted from Talmud Yerushalmi, isn't it enough that which God and the rabbis forbade you? You need to add on more. A statement is because you'll be too involved with such matters. Uh, so there's a certain distance that's approached. Even if the action itself is permitted, even if the action itself is permitted, it ingrains, it makes second nature to the person, uh, this mindset, this activity, this drive. And it's from that that a person will find themselves uh, perhaps in the midst of sin and the midst of uh, forbidden circumstances. Again, this is where Misilat Yisharim repeating, morning, repeating what we, what we saw him saying earlier, whereas Ramban Nachmani at the very beginning of Parashat Kedoshim says that these relations are in it of themselves inappropriate if you're overindulgent. That's Kedoshim Tihiyu. Uh, Misilat Yisharim says, well, per, the, the relations of husband and wife are not per se forbidden, but to abstain from overindulgence, to abstain from overdoing it, and that's necessary and that's important, so it doesn't bring you to sin. And after all, we have a statement from the rabbis in Masechet Sanhedrin. We have just a small limb. The more we feed it, of course, this is a reference to our hormones and our, our, our drive for, for, uh, for relations. And it says the more you feed it, the more hungry it is. The less you feed it, the less hungry it is. In other words, the description being that the more hungry it is, as Ramchal is alluding to, uh, the more it'll ensnare a person, it'll bring a person to sin. The Gemara Nedarim that he cites is about Rabbi Li'ezer. Rabbi Li'ezer, even in the midst of relations with his wife, did it with utmost siniyut, with covering, 
and not seeing and not feasting his eyes in the full sense. Now it's not per se halakha, but the concept of migale tefak, he would uh, expose a, a one-fifth uh, amount, but then make certain that two were at the same time covered. It's a concept that the hachamim are setting forth for us. If a person's interested in living a life of kedushah, it means realizing that pity shoot, that abstaining even from permitted circumstances is part of the necessary engagement. I mentioned it just this past week in a different context, but uh, very much appropriate. Parashat Emor, this past week's parashat, talks about the holidays from the vantage point of Mikra'e Kodesh. These are the days on which you're calling out sanctity, holiness. How would you define holiness? Of course, that's what we're dealing with in this Perik Perishut. He's equating in several circumstances with the statements of the rabbis, where they describe it as Kadosh, the Nazir and others. Now, the Torah in Parashat Emor, of all things, it has several references, but the unique reference with regards to the holidays in Parashat Emor is the Isun Melachaz, the abstaining from inappropriate activity on those days. Kiddushah, Parashat Emor, and other circumstances seem to be teaching us, is manifested through abstaining, through restraint. And that's the concept here. Restraint, abstinence, pity shoot, can and often does bring about a changed mindset, a life which is refined. It's not to say per se that everyone, and we'll deal with this later in this pedic, is appropriate for an extreme in this respect, but to curb appetites, to bring forth a life in which I realize I shouldn't exert and I should be saying no from time to time or more often than saying yes. Well, that's very much in line with what it means to be kadosh. The truth is you have in other circumstances with regards to Kedushah. In next week's parashah, this coming week parashah is parashat Behar. We'll talk about Shemitah and Yovel. Those are times that's the ground which is sanctified. Well, how's it sanctified? Through what? So maybe you'll say it's through harvesting the land and dedicating it to God. Beautiful. That's not what Shemitah and Yovel are. Shemitah and Yovel are abstaining from working. There are circumstances, there are situations, says God to us through the Torah, explains Mesilat Yesharim, where by restraining, we bring forth sanctity. Our holiness is manifested best at times during which we say, I know this is permitted, but I'm going to hold back. Now that's going to refine my character. It's going to change my mindset. Some time ago, there was a fellow, he's, uh, the C- he was the CEO of, uh, of Starbucks. His name is Howard Schultz. He had a close relationship with my Roshi Shiva, with Rav Nassim Svi Finkel. He wrote an op-ed for the New York Times as he was running for president, or attempting to, was a failed uh, attempt, uh, in which he was describing true leadership of all things. He wasn't describing sanctity, but we're going to apply it in this context. He was describing true leadership, and he described how a leader needs to be a person who's not just a leader for his own gain, a very Jewish concept, but rather a servant leader. He's serving the people. And to portray that, he told a small story uh, a brief anecdote with Rav Nassim Tzvi Finkel, the former Rosh Yeshiva of Mir Yeshiva in Israel. And so what he said was they were once walking to the Kotel together. They were walking to the Kotel Ma'aravit together. And as they were approaching the Kotel, of course, the rabbi being a famous rabbi, well-known, scholarly, but leader in, in leadership capacity, many people were coming over to talk with him, to request berachot. And uh, Howard Schultz walking next to him, of course, maybe used to that own honor in his circles, I imagine was looking at him and realizing, well, the rabbi's distinguished. Look at the rabbi's stature. Look at his uh, significance. He has almost a majestic feel when I'm together with him. Everyone's coming up and seeking his advice. 
his blessings and so forth. And as they got further and closer to the wall, he noticed that the rabbi began to slow down. At a certain point, he stopped. And Howard Schultz tugged his coat, tugged his, and, and kind of pushed him forward. You see, what you have to know, and he didn't write this in the article, as I recall, as Rabbi Finkel had a debilitating Parkinson's disease. So I'm almost imagining that Howard Schultz thinks in the moment, the reason the rabbi's not walking forward is because he's stuck, he can't get forward. So he's almost pushing him forward. Maybe I'm reconstructing it, but that's how I see it. And the rabbi says to him, no, no. I says, what do you mean, rabbi? We're not up at the Kotel yet. We're a good 15, 20 feet away from it. He says, you go. I've never been further than this place. I have to understand, Rabbi Finkel, although born in America, had at that point lived at least four, four and a half decades in Israel, in Jerusalem, never been closer to the Kotel. He said to him, you go. He said, no, but Rabbi, come on, we're just right here. Let's go pray closer to the wall. He said to him, you go. I'm not worthy. And that, those, those three words, I'm not worthy, those, that, that, that vision, that realization of self, that I could extend myself further. I could technically speaking walk all the way up to the wall, but I'll stop myself here to me has always stood out not only as a leadership position, as Howard Schultz envisioned it, as being a leader who's also serving the people and saying about yourself, I'm not worthy, they're the worthy ones. But more than that, that's a person who has kedushah. It's a person who says, I could walk up to the court. There's nothing wrong with that. Let me build a certain kid and let me appreciate sanctity and holiness, Kiddushah, in its fullest, fullest sense. Let me find pity shoot in, in a genuine fashion and say to myself, I'm going to, even if it matters amazingly of Kiddushah, but I can achieve it from here with a yearning to there by restraining. That in and of itself is very significant. That's the concept of pity shoot. I, I mentioned as well in, in writing for this past week's uh, parasha that... Um, the Mikubalin, the Jewish mystics, have such a concept as well. They envision it, ironically, through Borei Olam. HaKadosh Baruch Hu in his creation of the world, according to many of the Mikubalim, uh, in different ways, varied in interpretations to this, but it's an Arizal concept for all intents and purposes. It's known as Tzimtzum, that the only way that God could create the universe in existence as we have it is by contracting himself. Now, what that means exactly is very difficult, but very basically it means this world is finite. For an infinite being like HaKadosh Baruch Hu to be present, so to speak, in his fullest sense, well, there couldn't be any existence for me and you. Now, to a certain extent, that means that you and I and everything around us is a mirage because God can, can't fully contract himself. There's some sort of paradox over here. But fundamentally, the description in and of itself is very telling. What can we learn from that? Aside from the philosophical, Kabbalistic underpinnings, what does it mean about existence? What does it mean about me and you? What sort of musab can we learn from that description? It's that in order to bring about a world and a life in the fullest sense, to a certain extent, needed to restrain himself. He couldn't fill all, had he filled all, we call that well then there wouldn't be room for existence. Restraint, making room, making space, realizing that I cannot and I should not exert myself even to the extent that I can or naturally would. Well, that's what Simtsum at its core in terms of character development, in terms of Midot, terms of Musa teaches us. So Misilat Yesharim then in this paragraph has continued this description without again addressing the stira, the contradiction in the words of the Hachamim, but he's addressing for us the reality as we know it. To say at times or consistently, I'm not worthy, 
engenders within us a certain growth mentality. Hamalbushim vahkishutim, he continues. Lo hisira Torah al yofiam or al tavnitam. Ela shelo yebaim kilaim viebaim sisiri. It says clothing, adornments. Uh, jewelry. Says, there's no laws per se. There's very few. If you have four corners, make sure there's sisit. If it's made out of wool and linen, well, make certain that it's not. Shatnez. Aside from that, how many laws are there? As long as you fulfilled those two, you put the sisit, you made certain there's no shatnez, all is permitted. Om nam. However, says Mesilat Yesharim, and here's where he's really leveling down, look at Yanos in the eyes. This is who's going to deny that clothing, fine clothing, that searching for adorning myself in the finest, most expensive, fancy fabrics and, and, and garments, that that's not going to bring forth ga'ava, haughtiness, zinut potentially, extending myself, assuming I'm great, I can get into someone else's world and be involved with people that I shouldn't be because it's my self-centeredness, which is what is birthed through ga'ava. Milevata kina, kina means that I'm going to be jealous of another because that's my focus. My focus is on material gain. Ta'ava, oshek, nimshachim, I'm going to in turn want to procure someone else's. There's going to so much from a simple thing such as the mindful decision as to what I'm wearing, as to what I uh, decided to buy to wear. There's a midrash that says when uh, when the yetzer sees what we're wearing, sees us brushing our hair and looking in the mirror, I'm extending it and deciding we look good. Ah, it's in that moment the human being is in my possession. Again, he's continuing describing permitted circumstances where who can deny if you overexert or if you get involved too much in these situations, you're prone to sin. Tiul means taking leisurely walks and and, and trips. Dibur means speech. If you're not taking trips to forbidden places, if you're not speaking in forbidden ways, there's no question, according to the Torah, even according to the Chachamim, it's permitted. Omnam, however, again, the Omnam that he's, however, how much, if not done with the proper intent, how much, if not done with the appropriate perspective, how much bitul Torah, how much uh, neglect in terms of my uh, connectedness to study and involvement in Torah can be born out of that. How much in turn from idle talk and chatter, which might be permitted, am I going to lead myself to forbidden talk? How many times am I going to bring myself to being speaking falsely? How many times are we going to bring ourselves to speaking uh, in silliness, in, in matters of... of, of, of uh, of obscenities. The Pasuk Mishleh says, with much speech, it's impossible to avoid uh, sin and negligence. Here's the principle of the matter. Since existence, as he has described it, as our lives uh, continue and are nurtured in this world, are ultimately speaking filled and prone to encounter many dangers. How could you not praise yourself and see it in a praiseworthy fashion, a person who's distancing themselves from overindulgence or indulgence at all 
‫עם תענוגי הנאות העולם הזה. ‫זהו עניין הפרישות הטוב. ‫הוא אומר, זה בטרן, ‫אני עושה את הקייסט, ‫אני עושה את הדירקציה, ‫האקספלנציה של פרישות, ‫שלא ייקח מן העולם ‫בשום שימוש שהוא משתמש ממנו, ‫אלא מה שהוא מוכרח בו, ‫מפני הצורך, ‫אשר לא בטבעי אליו. ‫האחד הדבר שאתה צריך להתמודד ‫בתוך העולם הזה, ‫זה מה שצריך להתמודד, ‫בין פיזיקלית ואינספירטואלית. ‫אבל מעבירים ‫הוא מה שהשתבח רבי במאמר שזכרתי, ‫שלא נהנה מן העולם הזה אפילו באצבע קטנה. ‫אם היותו נשיא ישראל ‫ושולחנו שולחן מלכים בהכרח ‫לעיקר נשיאותו, ‫כמאמרם ז"ל, ‫שני רואים בבטנך, ‫זה רבי ואנטונינוס, ‫שלא פסק מעל שולחנם וכולי. ‫הסייץ מסילת ישרים, ‫two statements of the חכמים. ‫the first one he cited earlier, ‫the גמרן כתובות מדף קד, ‫where רבי, רבי יהודה הנשיא, ‫he was a great leader of עם ישראל ‫for a time period. Of course, the editor of the Mishnayot, he was the Nasi, which meant he was a political, in addition to Torah leader for the people. As a result, we have one Midrash, which tells us, and Rashi's commentary to the Torah, Parashat Toledot, Gemaran Avodazaran Daf Yod Aleph, that he raised, uh, that, that his table, just like that of Antoninus, the Roman emperor of the time, was filled with all the ta'anugim, all the fine foods, and all uh, the indulgences that were possible for anyone and everyone to have. At the same time, however, the Gemara Ketubot says that at his death, he raised his ten fingers up to the heaven and said, these ten fingers never touched more, my body never filled itself more, than that which was absolutely necessary. There seems to be a blatant contradiction. If he had all the ta'anugim at his table, if he had all the delicacies and fine foods at his table, much like the Roman emperor Antoninus, so then how was it that he didn't touch it? How was it that he didn't indulge it? And the answer, Misilat Yesharim, basing himself on some of the Rishonim is setting forth is, he knew how to restrain. It was necessary as the Nasi to have all that. It's necessary in our own lives to be involved in specific circumstances. But how do you then draw the line for yourself? That's not to say that you took yourself out of the social fabric. Rabbi was the Nasi. He needed to be, perforce, per in that position where he had lavish things, items, and foods in front of him. But in terms of his own indulgence, in terms of where he drew the line for himself, well, he knew how to appropriately do so. I mean, it's a challenge. Our, our, our families, our children, our community at times is, is telling us and is... Uh, in sometimes appropriate situations, making clear that, uh, that involvement above and beyond the absolute necessity is what the norm needs to be. And I can't, and Misilat Yesharim would not, per se, say to run for the forest or for the desert then. But he would and is cautioning us. Again, before he's dealing with the technical details of the hachamim, when appropriate and when not. But he is making clear already that Perishut, if we're following that direction, of Rabbi is a necessary component for ourselves, so you can have it there. And it can be for those as necessary, present, assuming it's not assuming HaTorah, but to be parush, to be in your own way, a person who abstains, well, that's, that's, that is the name of Perishut. That is, that is the reality, that's the direction. I remember once reading about Rabbi Chaim Salvechik, he was asked, he was a great rabbi who lived in Brisk and died at the beginning of the 20th century, but set forth, he's famous for this, for his, his a, a, a analytical approach to Talmud. He's renowned for changing the way in which we study Talmud for the last seven, for this last hundred years plus. So he was asked about his father, Bet HaLevi, Rabbi Yosef Dov HaLevi of Slotsk, known as the Beit HaLevi, based on his book. He was a rabbi in uh, the Lajan Yeshiva. He was asked about him, did he wear tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam? 
Did he wear tefillin only like Rashi, that many of us do, but, or did he re- wear as well tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam? And the answer was, I'm not certain. How could you not be certain what your father wore? Of course you know what your father wore. He says, well, did you look at Shohan Aruch? Shohan Aruch says that only a person who's uh, on a level of Hasidut, only a person in our words who's a parush, is appropriately wearing tefillin. As a result, he says, my father, who was that epitome of parush, I couldn't and wouldn't know if he was wearing them. To the extent that he would abstain, he would abstain the publicity on it, much as, much as, as he would abstain from uh, any indulgences above and beyond that which was appropriate. Which means That's to say perishut is a mindset, perishut is an approach. To be a parush means that I'm doing it because this is the way that I live my life. There are circumstances where Hachme Hador, even without the Gezerot of the Talmud, will build Gedarim and Siagot, Siagim as well. And I mentioned last week in the introduction to Mishnah Berura Ish Rabbi Mazuz, he should live and be well, he sets forth many, many circumstances in the last several hundred years where we found new Gedarim, new Gezerot of the Hachamim, new situations where the rabbis of community said, but we don't do this. On the other hand, we have statements, you don't have that after the Talmud. Says, Misila, says, says Rabbi Mazuz, says the, the explanation to that is as follows. It says, in, under circumstances which are pressing, when it's necessary for the community, we have done so. We don't do it with the authority of the Talmud, that it'll be existent under all circumstances, but we do and have set forth appropriate situations of Gidarim of Gezerot, when the Sibur had it as a necessary reality. The so Hizkiyah... these things, though, tend to become stale? When do we look at these... It's a wonderful question. There's no simple answer. What Rabbi Mazu says is, when the generation has seen that they distanced themselves from what the challenge was, so then the Hachme Hador abandoned it and told everyone that they didn't need to. It means that after Talmud time, after the Mishnayot and the Gemara, we now have that authority to have communal ena- uh, 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 um, enactments, but at the same time, it doesn't continue, uh, you know, ag- above and beyond any tides which might shift us. Also, if we shifted, if we changed, if we fixed it, so then they do get lost in that respect. The after Talmud Gedarim. The reason I mention it though is because we we have this. Many people have this mindset that perishut is inappropriate, and we've never done this. So already Mr. Ali Sharim has been telling us why it's necessary. He hasn't per se touched on how it works in the technical aspect. What I'm adding though is in the technical aspect, we've seen it. We've seen right. it. He's got a long list of it. He continues and he t- gives other examples of it. So says there many ma'amarim above and beyond the Rabbin and Tuninus and Rabbin, Ketubot and Koftalid and Chizkiyahu Melech Yehuda. There are many. And he's mentioned some and he's left others out. Where pity shoot. It's not just uh, okay, perishut is appropriate. Here's where he gets the technical aspect. If you'll ask, if indeed perishut, that abstinence, that moving away is necessary, so then why isn't that we don't have perishut systematically and part of our system of halakha? In many other circumstances. In other words, what he's telling us throughout is, even the makom hetir, to say that I'm not worthy. 
Uh, even when the clothing are permitted, but to hold back. Even when the relations are mutar, to say, but I don't want to be feeding my ever katar. So then why didn't the hachamim do this? Systematically. So yes, we have Ezra HaSofer by uh, Keri, which we read earlier. Uh, certainly we have mention of Nazir. But why don't we have this more than that? And if anything, again, we had Talmud Yerushalmi, which told us, Lo dayecha, isn't it enough? Which God, that which God told you is forbidden? Isn't it enough that the rabbis told you forbidden? You're uh, adding on? And there's the primary and fundamental principle of Mesilat Yisharim in this Perik. And that's how he resolves this, this dira. Uh, the contradiction is resolved by saying, uh, the Gezerot of the Hachamim and the Torah in turn is specifically in circumstances where the average person could withstand and could withhold. If this is something that's above and beyond the average person, we don't have it as part of the system. That's not to negate its appropriateness, but we don't have it as part of the system. He says to get to this Hasidut, which if you recall, we told us at the beginning of the Perek, that's what we're talking about now. We're not all capable of getting there. To be sadikim, however, uh, we, we can suffice with that. In fact, Gaon mi Vilna, today we know him as Gaon mi Vilna, his name was Rabili L. Kramer, a place called Vilna. In his lifetime, he was known as the Hasid of Vilna. And what's told about him is that he had problems with being called that. You want to call me the rabbi of Vilna? Okay, I don't even know if he was okay with Gaon mi Vilna. He said, Hasid, all I do is, be, all I do is fulfill the words of Shohan Aruch. Again, Hasid is the description. He was well aware of Masilat Yisharim. Hasid is the description above and beyond. Hasid is the parush. He said, I follow Shohan Aruch. He said, maybe my brother, it's appropriate to be sad about. Happens to be, we know plenty about Gaon Mivilna. That's anything but that. Gaon Mivilna, we happen to know in terms of his eating habits. He would have, I think, I think what's, uh, what's written in Aliot Eliyahu, I think it's four zetim a day. His zetim may have been a little bit bigger than, the, uh, than an olive size, you know, that we have. But in terms of kazayit, his kazayit, according to our Masoret, is a little bit smaller than we do on Pesach. That's what he would have daily. And nonetheless, we have descriptions of what he looked like. What did he look like? He was a little bit of a burly individual. He had, uh, he had natural strength. Where'd that come That's from? Burly. Burly means he had some muscles. Not heavy per se, overly heavy, but he was a little bit muscular. He was, he was filled out, which is interesting. He wasn't exercising per se. I once heard from uh, Rabbi Moshe yeah. Tversky, Hashem Yikom Damo. Rabbi Moshe Tversky said that it was, it was Parashat Bo at the time. He said that there's a concept, Ramban Nachmani brings this forth in the context of the man, that man was a sustenance, but we look at it sometimes and we let, got led astray by the Midrashim. It tasted like whatever you wanted. We pay attention to the physical side of the man instead of realizing it was lechem in hashamayim. quite clearly is describing it as a spiritual aspect. Ramban Nachmani very much portrays this in his commentary to the Torah. His description in turn was that only Vilna with his abstinence, with his perishut, with his hasidut, I still tapped into uh, a health of a lifestyle. That's not to say that that's for everyone. It's not to say that abstinence, and he's going to be very clear, should bring us to dangerous situations. Far from it. But a person who's there, a person who realizes in their own life, in their own achievements, they can be poresh, well, it's a necessary next step. 
To be Poresh is to realize that that's my pathway to Kedusha. To be Poresh is to, as my rabbi said, is to say, I'm not worthy. Ach, hasiridim asher ba'am, those who stand out in the nation. Ha-hafesim, lizkot lekirbato yitbarach, lezakot, bizchutam lekol she'ar hehamon hanitlabam. It says the individuals who want the, the nation, Am Yisrael, to be dependent upon them, they want to bring forth the kapara, lahem magia lekayem mishnat hasidim, it's for them, who mishnat hasidim, who this teaching of, of righteousness, of perishut, is appropriate for. Now, so why is he teaching us this? If this is a gezerah she'en rov hasibu yecholim la'amod bo, if the average person can't achieve this, so then why is he writing it in his book? It's the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin talks about these sorts of individuals on Dafsadizayim. What he's talking about is not only inspiration with regards to assuming that someone like me, or maybe like you, but someone like me is going to rise to this, but there is, like anything else, there are levels. There's achievement, you know, similar to what Harambam writes in Hilchot Teshubah. Harambam has many contradictions when he talks about Olam Haba. But if you read it carefully, as several of the Mefashim of Harambam point out, as he talks about different things. He talks about being Zokhe La'olam Haba, and he talks about being Zokhe Lehelek La'olam Haba. Helek La'olam Haba. Not everyone gets Olam Haba. What's the difference between Helek? And olam haba chelik means I have a portion of it. Olam haba means I've dove there's, into it. There's different levels. So his description will turn over here. That's right. There's many. The description over here is I'll talk about perishut. I'll give it to you on the achievement in that ideal. If you get there, that's going to be siridim. That's going to be the few individuals who stand out. Uh, for you and me, however, well, let's let's work toward it. Let's find within our own lives the opportunity for perishut. We have individuals who are necessary components of our nation. It's through them that we in turn can be lifted up, but they're necessary because we can't all be there. Kainyan Shedarshu, he cites the Midrash from this past week's parasha. We'll pause with that, but what's his Midrash? What's his Okay, 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 I'll help you with Eliyahu in a second. First, the Midrash, the Midrash by the Arba'aminim, the Midrash, of course, a well-known midrash says that the four minim, each one has its own status. The etrog has both ta'am and re'ah, has both good taste and good smell. The hadasim have a good, a good smell, but they don't have a good taste. The lulav has a good taste, but no good smell. And the aravot have neither a good smell nor a good taste. We bind them all together. We have a mitzvah agada of, 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 of eged when it comes to lulav. At the very least, lechatechila, and as a result, it says the midrash, what we're effectuating, what we're symbolizing, is we're saying none of us can all can be the the etrog, but by putting us all together, each of us is somehow inspired by the other to be uplifted. It says Mesilat Yesharim, you have the siri dimasher ba'am, you have the individuals who can achieve perishut. It's for them that we're most specifically putting forth this objective. That's not to say that others can't and shouldn't be striving. Okay, 
Afuah Marlov, Chimishnat Hasidim, he, he's citing from Talmud Yerushalmi, and Talmud Yerushalmi is following a difficult story. It's a Ula Bar Koshev was wanted by the authorities. Uh, it was an individual the authorities wanted. He ran away to the dwelling place of Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi lived in Lod. He was hanging out in Lod, and the authorities found him there. And they threatened, if you don't give us Ula Bar Koshev, we're going to destroy his entire city. It means all the inhabitants. Now the Halakha in such a circumstance answered Bi Yoshua ben Levi knew. They said, we know it from the Gemara and Masechet Sanhedrin and Dafa'in Bet. It's in such a circumstance, you go, we know it, Rashi cites it over there from the Sheva Ben Bichri circumstance in the Navi. But ultimately speaking, is you have to give up the individual because it's going to be the whole city and that individual, or just that individual, you give him up. As so Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, as a result, gives up Ula Bar Koshev. I couldn't, can't imagine it was an easy decision, but that's what he does. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, what we know very much about him is that Eliyahu Hanavi would, generally speaking, frequent him in conversations. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, as a result, the Aharonim have that debate. Down to Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, through Eliyahu, through Malach Hamavet, was able to make his way into Olam Haba while still alive, and they have a debate, what's the status of his wife? But Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi was that sort of individual. So as a result of giving up Ula Bar Koshev, uh, all of a sudden, uh, Eliyahu Hanavi stopped appearing to him. And he got nervous about that, until Eliyahu finally comes again. He asked him, what happened? And so he says, I know what happened with Ula Bar Koshev, says Eliyahu to Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. He says, what, what, velav, velav mishnahi? I think it's velo mishnahi? Didn't I do the right thing? Isn't that the halacha? Responds Eliyahu, lo mishnat hasidim he. And he says, although you may have done right, you didn't do mishnat hasidim. No, you didn't rise to the level of hasidim. What does that mean? Well, it's a different mefarshim to Talmud Yerushalmi. Some suggest it means that Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi shouldn't have been the person who handed it over with his own hands. Let the authorities come in and find him. That's going to be the halakha. Don't, don't hide him per se, but let them come in. Don't, don't hand him over. That's Mishnat Hasidim. Alternatively, he was too quick in giving him over. He was nervous for the city. He should have just let things go on, progress. Mi'iri has such an interpretation. Ultimately speaking, though, the reason Misilat Yisharim is quoting this Midrash from Talmud Rushami is to make the following point. Yoshua ben Levi acted kahalakha. He did what he was supposed to be doing, but he didn't act with Mishnat Hasidim, says Eliyahu. No, no Mishnat okay, Hasidim, I'm going to ex- abstain. Yeshua ben Levi, you should be greater than that. Perishut, then, is the opportunity, is the responsibility for each of us, as my rabbi did, to stop and ask ourselves, are we worthy of this? With a smile, of course. The question is, do we go above and beyond with regards to abstaining from circumstances where we could? where we should, where we know that the people around us might not be doing so, where even our family might be involved in it, but can we nonetheless find and carve out within those circumstances the self-restraint even in Devarim HaMutarim Lanu? Mesilat Yisharim will continue to detail this distinction, but the principle has been laid forth in a very clear way. Baruch Adonai Amen